Faye, in this era of rapidly changing practice with respect to COVID, I am so happy that I have a continued subscription to the OBG project. Definitely. I have really appreciated my OBG First subscription as well because I get a lot of my information actually from my phone. And so when they email me and I'm able to rapidly click on those articles and read them before they go away, that really allows me to continue to stay up to date on everything that's going on. And it's even beyond just COVID, right? They send us summaries of the latest and greatest and randomized trials for obstetrics, gynecology, and primary care, as well as other interesting articles that, hey, that just may be relevant to my practice or just something fun to know. So if you're a fourth-year resident like Nick and I, you can get one year of subscription to OBG First absolutely free. And we have actually gone beyond our first year, and I have continued to subscribe to uh, the OBG Project and OBG First just because I think that it is so helpful for my current practice and for my learning. All right, guys, welcome back. This is Faye. This is Nick. And this is Creogs Over Coffee. Coffee. So today we'll be talking about the second episode of aloe immunization. So while before we talked about preventing aloe immunization, now we're going to talk about managing RH sensitization and non-RH antibodies. Uh, Once again, it's kind of a dry topic, so if you want to do the reading, go ahead and pick up Practice Bulletin 181 and Practice Bulletin 192. All right, Nick, so what are our learning objectives for today? All right, so first we're going to quickly review those blood group antigens and ally immunization. Again, just a quick form review of what we went over during the last episode. We're going to outline the antenatal management of a positive antibody screen for blood group antigens. And then finally, we're going to discuss monitoring for and management of suspected fetal anemia due to ally immunization. All right, so Faye, you think you can give us a quick review on those blood group antigens and ally immunization? Not without my notes, but I'm going to try. (laughs) So first of all, there are over 36 different blood group systems for human blood. The most common ones that we use are the ones that we're all aware of, so the ABO system and also the rhesus or RH blood group system. The RH system itself has over 40 blood group antigens. Of these, the most common and important ones are capital D, or just D as we call it, big C, little c, big E, and little e. Remember, there is no little d. The D group is what we most commonly hear about and spent our entire last episode talking about. Again, someone who is RH positive means that they have a positive RHD antigen, but these other antigens are also in the rhesus classification. Beyond the RH system blood antigens, there's also a bunch of other significant or common blood group antigens that we encounter in clinical practice. This include things like Lewis, which uh, is denoted as LEA and LEB uh, antigens, as well as I antigens. And remember, these are of no clinical consequence. There's also the Kell antigen, which is definitely significant clinically, um, and it can lead to dire consequences in pregnancy. Practice Bulletin 192 has a huge table of all of these atypical antibodies and their relationship to fetal hemolytic disease, and so we're going to talk a lot more about fetal hemolytic disease and what we're going to do about it today. Finally, remember, alloimmunization, isoimmunization, they're synonymous. You can use them both interchangeably, so thankfully I haven't sounded stupid for the last four years. (laughs) 
what it means is that uh, it is the formation of maternal antibodies against blood group antigens not possessed by the mother. So left unchecked, this can lead to hemolytic disease of the newborn, a very serious complication that can lead to stillbirth or significant disability in neonates. Therefore, at the first prenatal visit, women should be tested for ABO blood grouping as well as RHD type and screen for presence of any erythrocyte antibodies. All right, Nick. So let's say, you know, we did that with our patient. You got her ABO blood group, her RH type, and you screened her, and she has a positive antibody screen. What do we do about it? So now we have a positive antibody screen. There's potentially ally immunization. So what we need to do next is figure out what that positive antibody is and how present it is. So the blood bank usually will report back the identification of the antibody as well as a titer for the antibody. That is the value of dilution at which an antibody screen remains positive. So a 1 to 32 titer is more significant than a 1 to 4 titer. Again, it took more dilutions to get the blood antigen totally gone in the 1 to 32 than it did for the 1 to 4. A critical titer is one that carries risk for high drops, and the values depend on the lab and depend a little bit on the identification of the antibody, but it's generally somewhere between 1 to 8 and 1 to 32. Additionally, a change in titer of more than one dilution is considered significant for a patient, so it's important to also note the rate of change in those titers. For titers less than 1 to 8, Again, so your 1 to 2, 1 to 1, 1 to 4, those titers should be reobtained every four weeks to continuously assess for change. One important exception to these general rules altogether, though, are anti-KEL antibodies. Again, those ones that we said that are extremely significant. And one of the reasons they're extremely significant is that anti-KEL antibody titers don't correlate at all with fetal status, whereas the other ones generally do. So again, anti-KEL titers don't matter. All the other ones get your titers. Next, after understanding your titers, the best thing to do would be to assess paternal genotype. After all, if the infant can't get the antigen that the mother is sensitized to, so for instance, dad has no Kel antigen for mom's anti-Kel antibodies to attack, then there's no need for further assessment. But if the father does carry an offending antigen, DNA testing can then be utilized to determine if the father is heterozygous or homozygous for that antigen, and then come up with a risk for the fetus to potentially have that antigen as well. But paternity is not always certain, or DNA testing of the father is not always available. So the next place to look is at fetal DNA. Amniocentesis is the gold standard methodology for fetal blood typing. Chorionic villus sampling can also be employed, but carries a higher risk of de novo immunization than amniocentesis does. The risk with CVS is usually quoted somewhere around 14% versus amnio about 2-6%. to RHD antigen carriage can also be determined by cell-free fetal DNA assays, and again, there are studies looking at cell-free DNA for D antigen as well as other blood group antigens, but these should be considered experimental. All right, Faye, so let's say that in our hypothetical case here, we've determined that a fetus is at risk for d immunization based on genetic testing. How do we try to keep this pregnancy safe and reduce the risk of severe hemolytic disease? 
So historically, let's say we're not in 2020, where we have all the technology that we do now. Before we had great ultrasound technology, we would do serial amniocentesis. Ooh. You can imagine how this would be really, really uncomfortable for moms. So the concentration of bilirubin in amniotic fluid could then be assessed. So bilirubin is released when you hemolyze red blood cells. So they, you would do an amniocentesis take the fluid and assess it for concentration of bilirubin through a spectral analysis through what's called OD450 light, which to my understanding is a light wave that is 450 nanometers. Though if you haven't done orgo in a while, I guess you're probably straining to remember what this even looks like. The current trend these days, thankfully, is to use mineral cerebral artery or MCA Doppler ultrasonography to look and monitor for fetal anemia. As studies have correlated the relationship between peak systolic velocity uh, at 1.5 times the median for gestational age with moderate to severe fetal anemia with 100% sensitivity. However, this monitoring should be done by those with experience in the technique, as even with good technique, the false positive rate approaches about 12%. For minor blood group antigen sensitization, such as Cal antibodies, protocols may be different. Kel in particular has a less predictable course and often results in more severe fetal anemia than alu immunization due to other blood antigens. If severe anemia is suspected, periumbilical cord blood sampling, or PUBS, or cordocentesis, can be used to measure the fetal hemoglobin directly. Um, an intrauterine transfusion can be performed to transfuse the fetus as well. Um, so I've only ever seen this once, and what happened was that there was an ultrasound, there was a needle that went into the belly that went into the cord, they connected a tubing to this to the needle, drew out blood, and then the MFM fellow ran as fast as they could with the tube of blood all the way down to the lab to immediately get the hemoglobin level and report it back so that they could transfuse the baby if needed. That sounds like an exciting job to have next year, Faye. Yeah, I guess so. As the first year fellow, I guess it's my job, so I better be wearing uh, my running shoes. Yeah, no kidding. Might have to trade in the boots. Exactly. Nick, let's talk about then intervention and delivery. So let's say you think that you have a baby who is alloimmunized and you think they may be developing fetal anemia. So at what point do you transfuse and at what point do you just say, heck with it, let's just deliver this baby? Yeah. So unfortunately, without getting into conversation with MFMs and everything like that, the answer is that it's complicated. Um, certainly, you're going to use your MCA Dopplers to get a sense of when, again, you're experiencing moderate to severe anemia, which generally is going to be 1.5 times that peak systolic velocity at the median for that gestational age. Delivery timing is controversial. If only mild hemolysis is suspected, ACOG recommends induction considered at about 37 to 38 weeks. But with more severely sensitized pregnancies, particularly ones that are needing intrauterine transfusions, the risk of repeated cord blood sampling and transfusion has to be weighed against that of early delivery. Um, this is going to be dependent on the center, their experience, and the particular individual case. So you can see sometimes delivery recommended as early as 32 weeks or continuing on with monitoring and trying to get to something closer to 36 weeks um, and obviously having steroids on board for that too. All right, Nick, I think that brings us to the end of our um, management of alloimmunization episodes. So let's go ahead and sum up. So again, we start off with a quick review of blood group antigens and alloimmunization. Again, over 36 blood group systems for human blood, but most common are ABO and RH blood group systems. The D group is what we most commonly hear of, and we spent all of our last episode talking about that. 
Again, someone who's Rh positive refers to having a positive D antigen. Beyond the Rh system antigens, there's a number of other common blood group antigens such as Lewis, I, and Kell antigens. Of those three, Kell is the most significant with respect to hemolytic disease of the newborn, which is a complication of alloimmunization or the development of maternal antibodies against blood group antigens not possessed by the mother. If you have a positive antibody screen, this results should be reported back by your lab with a titer. And so a titer means how many more times do you have to dilute the blood before that antibody, that positive antibody goes away. So a 1 to 32 titer is more significant than a 1 to 4 titer. A critical titer is dependent on the lab, but usually this is between 1 to 8 to 1 to 32. You should continue to repeat titers every four weeks if the titer is less than 1.8 to see if it goes beyond that, which would then require management. After you know your titers, the next best thing to do would be to assess paternal genotype to see if the, in the infant could possibly have an antigen that the mother is sensitized to. And also, if you don't know paternity or paternal testing is not available, there is also the possibility of looking at cell-free fetal DNA um, via amniocentesis to look at the baby's blood type. This, however, is still experimental. In terms of monitoring the alloimmunized pregnancy, again, if you are suspicious for alloimmunization on the basis of genetic testing, historically we could use serial amniocentesis to, to measure amniotic fluid concentrations of bilirubin through 450 nanometer light, though hopefully you're not doing that anymore and you're using middle cerebral artery Doppler ultrasounds to monitor for fetal anemia. The relationship is between peak systolic velocity in the middle cerebral artery, and if it's 1.5 times the median for gestational age, that correlates with moderate to severe fetal anemia with 100% sensitivity. However, the monitoring should be done by folks with good experience in the technique, as even with excellent technique, the false positive rate can approach 12%. The sort of exception to this rule can be the Kell antigen antibody complexes because Kell in particular has a less predictable course and often results in more severe fetal anemia than alloimmunization due to other antigens. Intervention for severe anemia can include things like periumbilical cord blood sampling and then intrauterine transfusions, and then also consideration of delivery, which timing is controversial. So if you have mild hemolysis, induction can be considered at 37 to 38 weeks. And with more severely sensitized pregnancies, there is the risk of repeated cord blood sampling and intrauterine transfusions, and this has to be weighed with the risks of early delivery. All right, so I think that about sums it up. So once again, this is Nick. This is Faye. And this has been Creogs Over Coffee. If you enjoy this episode, go ahead and go on to iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or any of your other podcatchers and give us a five-star rating and review. Find us online on Twitter at CreogsOverCoff1, on Facebook and Instagram at CreogsOverCoffee, or if you love the show and want to give us some support, head on over to our Patreon, www.patreon.com slash CreogsOverCoffee. You can find notes for this show and all of our other episodes on our website, www.creogsovercoffee.com. If you have a correction for this episode or any of our previous episodes or have an idea or just want to send us some love, email us, creogsovercoffee at gmail.com. <laughs>